breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter. You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Prenatal testing has become more and more interesting and more accurate as the years have gone on, starting with AFP serum markers to triple screens to now first trimester non-invasive testing. Today to help us understand this a bit better and go over the pros and cons of these tests, we have Dr. Lee Schulman, the Director of Reproductive Genetics at Northwestern University Medical School and Prentice Women's Hospital. Dr. Schulman, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. So this is a mess. You know, patients come in, they don't know what they want, but they think they do by reading the internet. And it's up to us as physicians to tell them what is the best test for them. And we kind of agreed that every patient, no matter what their age, needs genetic screening. So tell us a little bit about what's available right now for non-invasive testing for patients in prenatal genetics. Well, I think the, the foundation of all of this is that the recommendations from all the professional organizations is that a multi-marker assessment be offered. Now, they don't say which markers. They don't say which trimester of pregnancy, just that a multi-marker assessment be offered. And based on your introduction, that multi-marker assessment, the bare minimum that I would say, which would be the triple screen in the second trimester, a blood test evaluating alpha-fetoprotein, human chorionic gonadotropin, and unconjugated estriol, would be effective in detecting about 55 to 60 percent of fetuses with Down syndrome and about 40 to 50 percent of fetuses with trisomy 18. Most people in most centers, taking care of all women of all socioeconomic groups, have actually started to go to a quad screen, adding a fourth analyte in Hibben in the second trimester that increases the detection 
rate to about 80%. So there is a clear difference between the triple and the quad screen. This is all well and good. In fact, the numbers I'm going to be talking about really don't get much different than 80%, but a lot of women don't want to wait till 17, 18 weeks to get these results back. But the advantage of this test is availability, very easy to interpret for the physician. And cost-effective. Mm-hmm. In that way, it's very easy to do. It's a single blood test. It's easy to, to maintain the quality of the test, etc. And it's portable. That's another thing. You, you can get stuck in a truck in the middle of the summer, the middle of the winter, and you're still going to get essentially get the same analysis back. But it can only be done after 15 weeks, optimally at about 17 weeks, which if um, there is a problem with the screening outcome, if the patient is screened positive and she chooses to have invasive testing, we're not going to be getting that result back 18, 19, 20 weeks. Emotional issues, physical issues, lots of issues that you'd want to know that information earlier. And that really was the push to developing a first trimester assessment, which started out initially not as an analyte assessment, but as an ultrasound evaluation, uh, in particular evaluating the thickness of the skin behind the fetal neck, which has now become known fetal nuchal translucency. Interestingly enough, obviously, the earlier the answer, the better, since most people want to know the baby's genetically healthy before it's conceived. And under those circumstances, what would you say the increase in accuracy is what we're seeing now with new first trimester screening? Well, the nuchal alone, without anything else, is about like the old triple screen, is about a 60% detection rate. We have since found that there are first trimester analytes, serum markers. In this case, again, HCG, but another analyte known as PAP-A, where if you add those together, we're back up to about 80%. And again, that 80% with the quad screen and with the first trimester screen is going to be very little different from what you're going to be now hearing, which is, can we do better? And the answer is yes, but it's a qualified yes, because the doing better does a few things. Number one, increases the complexity, because doing better now involves taking first trimester and combining it with second trimester, which requires patients to return, which just becomes far more complex. It becomes more expensive. But we do get those numbers up to 85, 86, 88%, some studies even 90%. But I would argue that there is not a whole lot of difference between an assay that has a detection rate of about 80 to 82 percent and an assay that has a detection rate of about 85 to 87 percent. And you're thinking that the success rate of those two tests combining the first trimester markers plus ultrasound plus second trimester serum markers is? 85, 88, in some studies 90 percent, especially when you combine them so that the results are made known only during the second trimester, which clearly increases the detection rate, but is not really very good in case there's a problem early on. So it gets us back into that same issue of not finding out results until 16, 17, 18 weeks. You know, interesting too, I think that there are some more challenges in this testing in the sense that so much of the accuracy of the testing depends upon the person who does it, where blood tests, there is really no question of that. But with ultrasound, I think operator experience makes a huge difference. Operator experience is everything. It's why there is such a strict quality control program for every laboratory who accepts serum samples 
and nuchal measurements because you don't want everybody just putting a transducer on somebody's belly or intravaginally making a measurement without not being able to, to be documented that that measurement is accurate. So we do pictures. We send pictures in to be uh, adjudicated by the learned few in the field uh, who make comments about the quality of the pictures, the angles that they're taken. And as you go forward, every one to two years, you send in more pictures. How are you doing? Are you still measuring it You know the, the correct way? Understand that every time you move that transducer a couple of degrees, it can change your measurement. And changing the measurement can mean the difference between a screen positive and a screen negative result, can mean the difference between uh, being offered an amniocentesis or a CVS and not being offered it. So it clearly does introduce a lot of subjectivity that the old laboratory tests really didn't have. Is there a certification that's required for the person who's doing this kind of ultrasound? I'm not going to say that there's a certification required, but the laboratories that you're going to send the specimens to will not accept it unless you're part of one of several. The Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine does a program. There's a program out of the United Kingdom that does it. A lot of easy ways, and a lot of the laboratories actually do their own programs as well. So there are lots of ways of getting that certification or or that programmatic approval that you're doing it the right way. It's not that it's only available to a few. It's available to anybody who really, you know, does ultrasound. But in order to continue to send those specimens, and you do need to maintain that level of accuracy in your assessment. You know, there's a lot of research going on now about how can we improve even more upon this first trimester screening, and does something like the nasal bone measurement increase significantly the ultrasound help that can be offered to first trimester screening? I'll tell you, just using nasal bone in particular, there was a lot of great promise. Joanne Johnson, who used to be a co-fellow of mine, Uh, when I was at the University of Tennessee, she preceded me there, was the first person to identify the lack of a nasal bone in fetuses with Down syndrome. And there was great excitement that this would be a simple ultrasound marker. Well, guess what? We find out that I think it's clear that different ethnic and racial groups have different nasal bones, and some have little to no nasal bones without Down syndrome. Now, all of a sudden, we're getting into measurements of nasal bones. And if you think nuchal measurements are difficult, nasal bone measurements are even more challenging. So when it was an all or nothing scenario, it was promising. It clearly was not validated or not validated to be as effective as nuchal measurements. And once we start into measurements, it becomes more complex. It lengthens the ultrasound time, increases the cost, and we get down that that slippery slope of problems. So bottom line, it's not really increasing the accuracy so much with respect to... Not at this point. There are certain circumstances that I think come up that I want to just review quickly for this kind of first trimester screening. Is this something we can do for our multiple gestation patients? Uh, no and yes. No, that's clear. <laughs> that's clear. Uh, no, uh, serum analytes don't really uh, provide us with good information in multiple fetuses. The reason is, is we never really know which fetus is giving what component of the actual analyte. We take the blood from mom, but you know we assume that each fetus contributes equally, but we know that's not true. The great thing about nuchal translucency is that even though we'd like to use serum analytes with it, but at least we know that this nuchal belongs to that fetus, so we can get at least that assessment. Most labs don't evaluate, don't, they'll use serum markers for twins. 
I don't know of any labs that will give a result with serum markers and anything else with triplets on up. But even with twins, the detection rate falls compared to singleton assessments. Do you also find that in the first trimester screening, we're finding a decrease in accuracy if there's been a vanishing twin or a reduction of multiples in the first trimester? You know, that's interesting. I don't think we figured it out in our division, and the laboratories really haven't figured it out. We feel comfortable if that twin has been demised, if it's an early five to six-week loss. We feel comfortable by 10 to 11 weeks, it's playing no role in there. But what about the twin that demised a week ago? We're really not sure. Uh, When it comes to fetal reduction, for the most part, it's not an issue because either they've had CVS beforehand, meaning we've evaluated the fetuses that are remaining and that they're chromosomally normal and there's no need to do screening, or they're going to not go with any genetic testing or perhaps do an amniocentesis. But while I'm here, just so everyone knows, the one thing you cannot do after a, a fetal reduction is to do an alpha fetal protein test because it's always going to be elevated. And the last thing these patients need is to be told that a test is abnormal when, in fact, it's not abnormal. It's a normal outcome of the reduction assessment. Thank you so much, Dr. Shulman. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.